0: Hello, and welcome to Vet Club. We are another edition of Journal Club. Uh, so, welcome. I'm super excited to welcome a new guest to the show, Dr. Abe Jonathan. Welcome. Thank you. So, um, Abe is uh, a new ER faculty who works with me here at Virginia Tech. So, um, welcome. And, yeah, you're joining Journal Club, which is super exciting. It's just um, me and you today. because. I must be really scary cause nobody else ever wants to come. <laughs> um, it's usually, it's usually the Bobby and David show. Um, but he's out right now. So, um, so thank you so much for being here. Yep. It's like, it, that's, that's the thing that happens when you work here with me is that you're like, guess what? You get to be on a podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it get to, or you have to, it's kind of really depending on how you look at it. Um, but yeah, we have, um, several, um, uh,
1: Articles, articles,
0: articles. The <laughs> <laughs> you, you didn't know about that one. I almost forgot. I was like, oh crap! I have my, I have my sound bites. Um, yeah. So we have, we have four today. So it's kind of a, a busy journal club. But yep. I, I chose these. I think the only <clears throat> one that's on the seminar or the, uh, the additional articles reading list for ACVEC for residents is the review article, the cardiac troponins. I think that's the one. Now I can't even remember which one I pulled from that list. But then I was like, well, let me pull some other ones. So, and there there are a few that had come out after that had been published. So, um there's a there was a lot out there, but several of them were pretty simple and straightforward. So, hopefully it wasn't it wasn't too too much. But um yeah, I thought we could just kind of go through them um one at a time. We'll probably start with the review article um which is, you know, is a good article, but it's just kind of like, well it's, it's a little boring, let's be honest, because it's like physiology. It's a book it chapter. Is. It's very dry. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's what it has to be. Um, there is some good images in it, though. Gotta say, I do like um, the figure one is is a nice one. So that you know, kudos to that. I do have a little beef with this one, though. So the first <laughs> sentence in the abstract is: "Cardiac troponins are sensitive and specific markers of myocardial injury." That is not untrue, um, but I feel like it's a misleading statement. Um, And again, myocardial injury is a very broad term, right? Like lots of things can lead to myocardial injury. Hypoxia of, you know, virtually any kind can cause myocardial injury. Um, And as we'll talk about in some of the other articles, like, you know, who cares? <laughs> that's ultimately what I care about with these things is like how is it helping me clinically. Right. And so um but yeah, what it, what did you get out of what it, what was your thoughts on the review article? So the review article just for those it's uh, cardiac troponins in dogs and cats. So it was in JVM in 2016. Langhorn and Willison were the authors on that one. So that's the one we're talking about first. What were your thoughts, Abe?
1: So when I was reading it um I mean, I don't use troponin I haven't used troponin mm-hmm. uh, much at all because we, we end up using uh, BNPs. Mm-hmm. Um, which we'll talk about. Which comes later. Um, so it's interesting to see, I mean, pretty much most of research done is in a human model anyways. Yeah. And how the simala- similarity between um, do- marshaled dogs than cats. Um, what do you mean? As in, um, it's more homologous with dogs than cats
0: i see what you're saying okay yeah
1: um whereas i think with bn Just i think, closer. i think with bnp you're looking at cats more so than dogs um at least that's when it first came out i end up testing with cats first you know
0: you're right i hadn't actually even thought of that um but i think you're right we tend to use BNP more in cats and i don't know if that's yeah there's like a good sciencey reason for that, or if that's just, like, how it turned out? I hadn't even noticed that. (laughs) Good catch. Uh, I was like, oh, my gosh, you're right. Yeah. Um, That's fun. But, like, troponins are, uh, you know, things that are produced in, I mean, as far as I know, mammals um, in their hearts. And so um, I think this first article is really helpful just for reviewing the physiology. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you are an ECC resident, and you are going to be studying for boards. This is a good article to read. Um, And again, the the focus here is primarily on what's like what's the theory behind troponins? Like why would they potentially be useful? Um, And so, you know, they kind of go through in, um, you know, different sections for, okay, like what are troponins? How are they measured? But then the good stuff, as far as I'm concerned, is like, okay, when do you see them become elevated and why is that useful? And so they kind of break that into sections for um, myocardial injuries. So myocardial infarctions, which obviously is not going to be a huge thing in our species. Not a lot of heart attacks, um, at least that we recognize, in dogs and cats. Cardiac trauma, maybe a little bit more there with like blunt force trauma and things like that. And then probably the real thing that we care most about is primary cardiac disease. So, um, you know, the, the reason people want to have these biomarkers is because sometimes it's hard clinically to figure out what's going on in your patient. Right, <laughs> and right, so right. if we can identify a marker that is, um, you know, increased or only seen in certain disease states, that's super helpful. Um, and so, you know, I think that's where the, the theory comes in. The problem is in the second part of this, um, you know, discussion of when do troponins elevated is secondary myocardial injury. <laughs> so that non-cardiac disease, um, and that's the problem, is that you can see myocardial Injury in all sorts of things that aren't heart disease, um, and so again, that's where I that's that's kind of why I have the beef with that like initial sentence in the abstract is troponins are sensitive and specific markers for myocardial injury, and I think the implication for a lot of people that read that they think oh this is going to be really sensitive and specific for heart disease, and it's like no, not, like not unless you take the broadest definition of heart disease you can possibly imagine and be like oh somebody poked the heart, it's got heart disease like. No, <laughs> it doesn't. So that's the issue. You know, it's like if they have thoracic disease, if they have renal disease, um, you know, what are what are the other scenarios where these are potentially elevated, which gums up our plans of using them to differentiate between different diseases?
1: Yeah, I thought it was interesting when they um, mentioned... Um Because I didn't even think of it as in if it's things like blunt trauma, for Mm -hmm. example, um, using troponin level to see if there's blunt trauma um, to the chest area. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, didn't think of that.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I guess what I've always done has been like, I just monitor the patient. Like, oh, put them on ECG because I love ECG for heart rate monitoring. Oh, look at that, they're having some arrhythmias probably had some trauma. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, yeah, because it's like, what are you going to do differently? And the chances are probably not anything in most of these cases. So it's interesting. And like from a research perspective, that would actually be really cool um, to like take all the animals that come in with blunt force trauma and just measure troponins and be like, how many of them um are having like subclinical or unrecognized cardiac trauma? like that that makes sense. So, from like a research perspective, for me, it's easy to come up with lots of things that you can use this for. But from a clinical perspective, like, yeah. how am I really gonna like Jeez. how is this going to change what i what I would do? And the way it would change what I would do is if it could differentiate for me the patient that comes in in respiratory distress and I'm trying to figure out if this is primary heart or not. <clears throat> um, and so again, I think this article does a good job of reviewing the physiology and sort of laying the groundwork for, why we why we would care and what are the problems? Um, so again, for for me, it was really good for that. I just I just don't like that that first sentence was not wrong, just misleading. <laughs> um, I also the the idea that they're qua- I mean, we can quantify them, right? We can measure how many of these troponins there are, and that's also tempting, like we use for so many other things. Oh, uh, that we can compare values, you know. A, to be in, you know, this is a more severe injury. And I think that also gets a little tricky. Um, it's probably generally true. But again, what, what does that mean? That if this one has a value of, you know, 357 and this one has a value of, you know, 283, like what, is, what does that translate to for a clinical patient? And is that truly, can you um, normalize that between patients? And I'm not, I'm not sure we have enough evidence to, to support that. Um, and in fact, we have evidence to kind of throw a wrench in all of that.
1: Right. Because I think um, this this particular article was saying how the higher the number is, the less sensitive it is for cardiac yeah. disease, too. So I thought, well... I'm That's less helpful. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah.
0: So um, now there's different types of troponins, And so the tests are going to be different. Like, which one are you measuring and how is it being measured? Because then there's all the issues of just testing issues, right? Um, so I guess then maybe jumping a little bit ahead, but like the other article that we talked about, which is about using troponins. So this was from the Canadian Veterinary Journal in 2016, evaluation of cardiac troponin one in dogs presenting to the emergency room using a point of care assay. Um, And so this is uh, Porter et al. And um, I always like this because the abstract on the first page is in both English and French. Um, I don't speak or read any French, but it's just, it's fun. (laughs) And then I'm always like, I hope the rest of the article is in English. Um, So for this one, um, this is to me getting into like what I care about, right? Um, So maybe you want to just do a brief overview of what this study was?
1: Um, Sure. Um, So pretty much uh, like you're saying, this is more so from the clinical aspect of it. Um, They um, tested, I don't remember if it's from one particular hospital i think it was um yeah. so they tested a number of um intakes uh, er intakes um and ranged them pretty much categorized them between less than 0.1 0.1 to 1 and above 0.1 uh, above 1.0 yeah um and then compare it <coughs> compare it to quote-unquote, normal population as well, um, which def- <coughs> defined as um, one that doesn't have an increase um, in pro- uh, troponin levels and had um, an echo and all of that workup done to them as well to make sure they don't have um, heart disease. Um, in pretty much the study... The studies suggest uh, that uh, an elevated troponin level um, does carry a prognostic indicator, uh, well, a poorer prognostic indicator in terms of ER visits than when they're lower.
0: Yeah. So they weren't uh, in this one, they weren't looking to differentiate between like, oh, an animal presents in uh, this ambiguous state where it's like, does it have heart disease or doesn't it? They were basically just saying, okay, what are all the dogs that are coming into the emergency room for a period of time? And then, like you said, categorizing them to different um, kind of chunks of results for troponin one and then saying, what what does that mean? And Anybody who listens to the podcast knows how I feel about prognostic indicators and that, again, a useful article as long as people don't misuse the results, right? If you're trying to say, I'm trying to use this to set up a future study, great. If you're trying to actually predict whether or not the dog in front of you is going to live or die, you should not use this for that. That is wrong. Um, You should definitely not do that. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So when they say that it's a, you know, shows promise is a good prognostic indicator for dogs, um, I'm like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) Um, in what context would you you intend that for? Meaning if you were then going to do another study and you were going to look at, you know, okay, dogs that present to you are for trauma and I want to compare, you know, the use of, you know, carprofen versus uh, uh, acetaminophen on outcome. I don't know. I just came up with that. That would be a dumb study. Don't do that study. But let's (laughs) say that was what you're going to try to do. And you wanted to say at the beginning um, that the two groups were similar in their severity, you could use cardiac troponins to say, oh, okay, we randomized them. But afterwards, it turns out all the dogs that ended up getting carprofen just by random chance were actually sicker. And so, um, you know, we have to take that into account when we're interpreting our results. So using it as a, a way to to stratify patients, or you could, differently, you could say, when, when we enroll patients in this study, we're going to measure their troponins, and then we're going to use that to stratify them into different groups, so we need a, the same number of dogs that have a troponin less than one, uh, the same number of dogs in each group that have a troponin between, um, you know, less than 0.1 and more than one, and then the same number of dogs in each group that are greater than one, so that you're, you're you know, you're still randomizing them, but based on some you know, pre existing characteristics. But that's generally not what people use these types of studies for. They use it to predict whether or not one dog is going to live or die. And then they make recommendations based on that, which is so dangerous. Um, like and
1: lactate.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exa- yeah, I've talked about that <laughs> quite a bit on the show is that, um, you know, your GDVs still need to go to surgery. And no matter what their lactate is, that's the treatment. And if, you know, the owners don't have money, it doesn't matter what their lactate is. You're going to have to euthanize them. You know, like your treatment doesn't change based on the lactate. Now, if you're you're using it, to kind of follow your treatment over time, right? And if you're saying, hey, I'm doing these treatments and the troponins are increasing instead of decreasing, maybe I can use that to kind of reevaluate my plan. Maybe, you know, you could use it in that regard, but um, not in a, is this animal likely to live or die kind of a way because that's one patient and these are population numbers and you can only apply population numbers to populations. Um, So again, anybody who listens to the show knows this is kind of a soapbox for me. But um, so that's kind of, again, the, the, for me, a little bit of a frustrating part with, um, again, a well-designed study. I think they did a good job with it. Um, It's just what I find more useful as a clinician is uh, give me a test and tell me how um, how is that going to help change what I do? Like, how am I going to practice differently? How am I going to treat my patients differently? So it's just different aims. Um, I'm not saying one is more or less important, but I think for most of the people that are reading these articles out there, they're like, okay, but what should I be doing? How should I change my behavior as a clinician? If you're a researcher and you're looking for, okay, how do I help stratify these patients and make sure, okay, then yeah, those, those prognostic studies are useful. Um, so the good news is we did read a couple articles that do that. Um, so, but apparently that's only in cats. I didn't, I, I'm still like boggled by the fact that um, I didn't even recognize that BNP was, <laughs> I had cat studies and, and the troponins was dogs. But um, I don't know, what other thoughts did you have about the troponin stuff before we move on?
1: Well, I mean, with the study, um, I said suggest earlier, just because a lot of them are not, <clears throat> To me, it's the numbers themselves don't really support quote-unquote a general population. It's a right. pretty small number. Yeah. Um, and when you start subdividing them into...
0: Those numbers get smaller and smaller gets and smaller. It's really, really
1: small. And yep. like an oncology, um, a, a neoplastic disease of 8 out of 140 or something like yeah. that. Because most of them that came in... Came with normal, well, less than point one troponin level, which
0: yeah, yeah, that the, cl- the most of them, you're right, were in that normal range, less than point one, and then you had uh, the biggest ch- or the the second biggest chunk was in that in between range, and then you had a few that were in that elevated range, yeah. So, yeah, also less. Okay, it's not a very discriminating test. Right. Is is kind of the issue, um, but. I, I don't know. The other thing I've said on the show a lot, sicker patients are more likely to die. <laughs> I don't need a test to tell me that a patient is sick. Um, that's why they came, the, the clients usually know that too. So um, again, it's just, what, what am I going to do with that information? And, and that's where it gets tricky. Now, the higher that number, there was a little bit, again, numbers were small, but the higher the number, the more likely they were um, to have a poor outcome. But again, that's not surprising sicker animals don't do as well.
1: Right, Um, And is it higher because of cardiac disease or is it not?
0: Yeah. And they had, I think only 14. Wait, how many animals had heart disease? I can't remember.
1: Cardiac six. Only six. (laughs) It was even less than I remembered. I thought it was 14. Yeah.
0: So um, yeah. Oh, that's right. 14 was the control population. They had 14 normal dogs. Um, But yeah. So it's, it's, it's tough. Research is hard. right? <laughs> like it really is. <clears throat> um, now you did have like some impressively high troponins, like 29 was like, I think the highest or something I'm going back. Um, so it's just, but what do I, what do I do? Because the majority of them were either normal or in that meh range. So those are the ones that I think we're still like, what do, what do I do with that? And so it's hard for me as a clinician outside of a research setting to justify running a test like this, Um, most of the time I feel like it's not going to be particularly helpful. Um, at best it will be like nothing. And at worst it will be confusing. Yeah. (laughs) Like it will actually make it trickier for me to figure things out, which is generally not what I want. Um, so yeah. Um, Again, and I and I say all this, and because I, I bring all this up all the time, um, but it, it's like nothing against the people who do the study. Like we still need these studies, and other researchers need these studies. Um, I think we just need to be very, very clear when we're writing and reading these types of prognostic indicator studies. Is like this should not be used for these purposes. Like you should not take this and then change the way you treat or change whether or not you recommend treating, change whether or not you would recommend euthanasia based on these numbers. Like that should not happen. That would be wrong. Um, But if you're trying to, you know, decide, does this patient... Well, what's the likelihood of this patient having some disease? Now, the probably this is this is the other big thing where biomarkers, like people are really trying with lots of different biomarkers to can we come up with a blood test, something or some simple test that I can use to be like this patient very likely has this disease, and therefore that will guide treatment decisions. Like that's the holy grail of biomarkers <laughs> right. is tell me with you know some accuracy that my patient has this disease or that. Sepsis is probably one of the ones that we have um, the most research on. Um, but a fair bit of stuff on differentiating cause like cardiac disease or not. Um, So transitioning into the, you good to move over to the NT pro BMP. Sure. Okay. So we have two articles that we um, reviewed this week for, um, uh, for journal club. And so we have, Uh, From JVM 2016, differentiation of cardiac from non-cardiac pleural effusions in cats using second-generation quantitative and point-of-care NT-proBNP measurements. Um, And that's uh, Hesel et al. And then we also have uh, Ward et al. And this was from uh, also JVIM. This one was the next year, 2017. This is evaluation of a point-of-care thoracic ultrasound and NT-proBNB for the diagnosis of congestive heart failure in cats with respiratory distress. So again, the same kind of thing. So in both of these, we have a patient that comes in in respiratory distress. Um, one, it was specifically pleural effusion. The other one was um, just respiratory distress. And it says, can, what can we use to help us decide does this cat have heart failure or not? And anybody who's treated, you know, cats before at all, knows that like they don't they don't like to play by the rules. They do their own thing and they can come in and they can have pleural effusion in their heart failure and they can have pleural effusion from non-heart failure. They cannot have pleural effusion of heart failure. They can do pulmonary edema more like a dog would. So it, it's hard. Cats make it really hard. And similarly they don't always follow the rules as far as having a murmur or an arrhythmia where dogs are a little more predictable in that. But um, so they make it they make it tricky. So we have these studies. All right. I've been talking too much, Abe. So you're going to talk about which one do you want to talk about first?
1: Um, let's do the 2016. Cool. First. Go in chronological order. I like it. I mean, essentially, this is, I think I've read this journal a while ago because um, I've remembered pretty much like having that in my mindset. And hey, difficult um, a dipstick cat like let's run a bnp is it yeah. heart related is it fluid uh, is it um uh, lung uh, lung related and yeah. whatnot so um i mean it's pretty so this particular study um tested about 38 cats in the u.s and 40 cats in the uk mm-hmm. uh with cardiogenic or non-cardiogenic pleural effusion. Um, so if there's already fluids in there. Um,
0: so yeah, they only included cats with pleural effusion from some cause. So they, they were specifically looking at that.
1: Right. Interestingly though, as in, um, this is one that I um, didn't do. Um, they were um, testing... NT pro BNP concentration in plasma and pleural. Yeah, uh, I thought this was
0: pretty cool, um, and I, I liked their their argument for doing that because they're like, okay, you have a cat in respiratory distress, you might do the thoracocentesis and that actually might come before you can get blood from the cat because the cat's freaking out and it's not stable. So, um, so I really liked that justification; it made sense to me.
1: Right, um, and with that pleural fluid itself, it has a hundred percent sensitivity. Which, I mean, it is a f- relatively small sample, yeah. but I've never seen studies that will actually put 100% on something. Yeah, <laughs> you
0: know, they have. But again, when you have to look at the numbers, and then, but, and then you also say, well, what's the cost of that 100% sensitivity? And right. that the cost is the specificity. <laughs> and that's always, I mean, you can almost take any test results and you can find the point at which you have a hundred percent sensitivity or a hundred percent specificity usually not always with specificity but then what are you sacrificing and so the key is when you're doing sensitivity and specificity assessments is to try to find that sweet spot where both are pretty good and it's really hard to do um because you're almost always sacrificing something Mm -hmm. so the more sensitive you make it the less specific it's going to be you're going to include every patient who might possibly have heart disease but that means you're probably also going to include the patients that don't have heart disease so you're specific so um, for those of you that are like these words just drive me nuts so sensitivity meaning it's very very sensitive and just like i said it will pick up any patient who has this disease in this case um, pleural effusion caused by heart disease the problem is the more sensitive you make it, you're going to collect things that aren't heart disease. So a 100% specific test would mean every single um, patient that had a positive test has the disease. In order to make a test 100% percent specific, you're probably going to reduce the sensitivity. Um, and the reason for that is there's always overlap between the patients that have the disease and those that don't in in virtually any test results. So um, that means that If you ever read a paper that says the test was one hundred percent sensitive and one hundred percent percent specific, they didn't have enough numbers or they lied. (laughs) Like that's just not real life. Um, Like gold standard tests aren't that good, (laughs) and like that's the thing you are you are comparing it to. So um, yeah, so you have to take that into account. You are not expecting. I mean, of course you are expecting. I want one hundred percent, one hundred percent. You are not going to get that. Um, So then you have to say, well, what does it mean to say that this? I think, yeah, so the plural fluid on the not point-of-care test result was 100% sensitive and, like, 76% specific. So, what, like, what do you take away from that?
1: So we're catching more so. Uh, so, I mean, with the plural fluid part of it, um Pretty much, if it ends up coming back as positive, yeah, then we're certain that this patient has it. Right? No, no the side. other way around. That's specific. Yeah. If it-
0: so, if, so the way I would interpret, the way I would say that, if it's 100% sensitive, 75% specific, that means one in four of the patients that have a positive result don't actually have the disease. Cause it's 70, so 25%, 76.5%, but approximately one in four is wrong. Um, and so you can talk about it in like false positives and false negatives. So if you have hundred percent sensitive, that means if you have a negative result, you can be pretty sure your that patient doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. But if you have a positive result, you're like, that I probably have to do more tests versus if you went the other way around, if you had hundred percent sensitive or specific, ugh, I'm doing it not too, hundred percent specific, that would mean if you have a positive result, you can be pretty sure your patient has That's that it. disease. Yep. But if, if it, the sensitivity drops, then you're going to be missing some patients that do have it. Um, so, yeah, the plural effusion, if, um, if it's negative, then you can be like, okay, this is probably not heart disease. Um, so, if, that could be helpful if you get a negative result. But if you get a positive result, you're like, meh, this isn't really helpful. Um, and the same, same kind of trends for the plasma. So, if you measured it in the plasma, like the, the sensitivity, it, reasonably high, I think, for the first test was 95%, but the specificity drops to 82%, which means one in five cats that you – tested on that it's positive it's it's going to be wrong it's going to imply heart disease and be wrong um and then similar numbers for the point of care test it was a little worse um in the plural fluid but honestly not that much worse like they were both pretty crummy um so the sensitivity and specificity for the point of care test for plasma was about the same as for the um not point of care test the quantitative test and then the um for the pleural fluid, it was, again, the specificity was a little worse, but, like, both were pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. I guess it was arguably a lot worse, but it was a little better than flipping a coin <laughs> in, in the pleural fluid. Just a little. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, they don't recommend <clears throat> using it, um, the point-of-care test for pleural effusion because, or uh, for the measuring uh, NT-pro, BMP, and pleural effusion because the specificity was so crummy. Um but like you're gonna again, like I said, even in the the one that performed the best, um, you're still gonna have, you know, a, a good many cats that you're gonna get it wrong with, and so that's disappointing. So, what do you do with this? What do you like? Do you like do you like um, Pro BMP for your respiratory cats?
1: I do, um, but I mean, in ER settings, right? As mm-hmm. in, we've only used the Snap BNP to um, mm-hmm. so the point of care, mm-hmm. um, and I've only been using it with plasma. Yeah, um, because I mean, honestly, I I have not thought about. I'm like, mm, okay, well, I have.
0: And this study would support fluid. that. That's reasonable. They were. It was definitely better in plasma than pleural fluid.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that usually helped determine. The conversation that I'm going to make with yeah. the owner in terms of where do I send you from now on? Um, gotcha. Just because, Mike, well, if it's more likely, the way I use ProBNP in cats in particular, it I tend to say it gives an indication of um, yeah. heart disease, not yeah. 100% a hundred yeah. percent heart disease. So, if it, if that comes out positive, you should probably check with a cardiologist yeah. on um where to move forward from then on. Um, yeah.
0: The nice thing is for most cats that come in with pleural effusion, by removing that pleural effusion, they're usually breathing much better. Right. So now you have time. Um the you know the cats that come in, in pulmonary edema is is trickier. Um and we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next study. But um but I think that's the key for me is kind of what you said is um you can't use this in a vacuum, right? Like it's not, this is the only test you're going to use. So it's, this is one piece of evidence that you kind of, you can use to add to um, the case that you're sort of making out for, is this animal, um, does this animal have um, heart disease or not? Um, so it, it's just kind of a, You just, again, like so many things, if you use it appropriately, you're probably going to be fine. If you try to say, I'm going to base everything I do on this test, you're going to get yourself into some trouble now and again. So, um, but the tricky part is... It's not even that you can say, oh, I have this one where I'm not really sure is this going to help me? It's like, maybe, um, but it, it, it might not. And so if I'm having a case where I'm like, I'm convinced that this is heart failure, I don't need to run this. If it's one where I'm like, oh, I'm not really sure. It, this, Like you said, is it going to push me to say, okay, I need to maybe get that consult with a cardiologist sooner or um, or, like in the next study, which is another kind of along the same line. So the, the next study um, is sort of fun. Oh, well. Is there anything else you wanted to say on the, the one we just talked about the plural effusion one?
1: No. Um, remember the case that, that we had on my first day. He, well, one of my first days, a uh, cat came in with like plural effusion galore. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, came with negative, uh, as in a low pro BNP and whatnot. Oh, and I
0: actually don't know that. I remember it had been run. So somebody else ran, a, um, anti mm-hmm. pro BNP. Yep. Okay. It, what did it, it end up having?
1: Uh, Ends up having meds throughout the chest area. So it didn't have heart disease. Right. So that's good. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that supports this. Yeah. that's, That's what came to mind when I was reading the paper. I'm like,
0: Oh yeah, yeah, we did have that. That, that yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I think that's the thing when you're trying to prioritize. What diagnostics do I do next? Okay, if the pro BMP is high, then maybe you say getting an echo is next on my list. If you if it's low, then you say maybe doing something else is next on my list. Maybe I need to, um, you know, divert. Don't cross it off of your differentials, right? For in either direction, don't say okay. I know what this is, but help that guide like how am I using my resources and, and how am I prioritizing my plan? I thought, yeah, that's a really good um, example. Um, Cause I don't routinely run it. Not going to lie. I don't remember the last time I ran it. Um, I'm also very spoiled <laughs> in working in a place where I have cardiologists that I can call and be like, Hey, I think this one has heart failure. Um, but honestly, I don't even do that very much. A lot of times it's just like, okay, I'm going to treat for the thing I think it is. And the nice thing is with heart failure, they, if they get better, then it's probably heart failure. Um, that's like the the most definitive diagnostic test um, that I have is that response to therapy. Um, so, um, but I I do I, I like this. I thought um, I was trying to remember. I don't think they combined them because that's the other thing that's nice is can you take what if you combine the plasma result with the plural result and i don't think they did that did they, they don't um, okay i think
1: the conclusion of that particular study was use plasma and not plural yeah plasma.
0: but it would have been interesting to see like how often did those agree with one another, and did doing them together, like if you say, oh, you, if you have a value above this uh, in the pleural fluid and a value above this in the plasma, those combined maybe would increase the sensitivity and specificity. But I don't think they, I don't think they tried to do that. Um, I mean, that's kind of how. That's how we practice medicine, right? You just keep adding evidence, adding evidence. And the more things that you um, find that fit with the thing you think it is, you're like, okay, I'm building a case. This is probably what the diagnosis is. Um, So that was the one thing I kind of wish they had um, done with the numbers was to just say what happens if we combine these results um, and measure it either – I would have said I'm going to do point of care in plasma and point of care in effusion and to see like, if I combine those to can I get better sensitivity and specificity together mm-hmm. versus separately? But cause I think that's common too, that you can get both. Um, but anyhow, but the other one is a, is the same kind of thing. Like how do we combine different options? Um, so yeah. Do you want to chat some about the, the other, the ward article?
1: Um, so the last article that we have is evaluating um, point-of-care thoracic ultrasound mm-hmm. uh, with the anti BNP that we have, as well as focal um, cardiac ultrasound, I believe. Focal yeah. cardiac ultrasound. Yeah, thor- your thoracic ultrasound, um, yeah. So lung and focal cardiac ultrasound mm-hmm. um, in pretty much uh, predicting final diagnosis of cardiac heart failure um, in cats presented in respiratory distress. So not necessarily pleural effusion. Yeah. Uh, I think it goes with... um,
0: They were looking more for pulmonary edema, yeah. Although they did have some with pleural effusion. Mm -hmm. So it just, they were like respiratory distress. That was the inclusion um, criteria for this one.
1: Um, I guess my, my take from this was, well, if I ultrasound it and there's fluids. In there then it's more likely to be heart related
0: if, if there's fluid in the pericardial space right yeah pericardial effusion was very specific for um, if they had respiratory distress and pericardial effusion in this study which again it's not a bajillion animals i think it was f- 51 cats um, this one uh Respiratory distress plus pericardial effusion was 100%, 100% specific for heart disease. Now, again, small cohort. So it doesn't mean every cat in the history of the world that has respiratory distress and pericardial effusion definitely has heart disease, but it, it, you know, it building your case, you're saying, okay, that's most likely what we've got going on here. There are, I can imagine plenty of exceptions to that, but, um, but in this study, that was pretty good. However, the sensitivity dropped. So, a lot of cats that had heart failure didn't have pericardial effusion, so that's great if you see it and you're like, "I'm really worried about," per-. but if you don't see it, you're like, "I right, don't know." Right, right. Um, what else? Uh,
1: but then, if you can actually measure the left atrial chamber, yeah, um, that's a pretty, um, pretty straightforward. Yeah, yes, uh, it's 97% sensitive and 100% specific for it. Um, I guess... Have- that's a
0: pretty good test, <laughs> right? If you right. get to that point. Now, but what's There's the problem with that? to
1: the heart. As in, yeah, it's probably heart related. Yeah, like that's
0: how we diagnose heart failure. <laughs> but this is saying, rather than like an echo, a full echo, this is point-of-care um, thoracic ultrasound. So um, there are problems with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, pretty much reflecting on my own capabilities mm-hmm. and yes, I could get um, image of the left atrium Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. It's not going to be as simple as hey, pericardial effusion or no pericardial effusion. Um, So user-specific, user-dependent, I um, I guess, uh, with the um, left atrium, but it also clearly mentions subjective. So pretty much you kind of have to see quite a few left atrium to say, I'm like, oh yeah, that looks large.
0: Yeah. And so that's what I was going to go. I was going to the point in the study where they're like, who was doing these point of care ultrasound? So they said, um, participating ultrasound examiners were cardiology and emergency clinicians who had, so I'm guessing these were residents if I had to guess, but I'm not hundred percent sure about that. They just said clinicians, um, cause they weren't specialists. Um, who had completed a four-hour training session with an experienced lung ultrasonographer and echocardio- um cardiographer; those are both cardiologists. Um, and then the trainee had to demonstrate proficiency during three to five supervised examinations. So they did kind of test them to be like mm. making sure before they could they would include them in um, this part of the study. Um, so you know, I think that for the, the sake of this study, that was good to say they, they were, you know, were given training. Uh, it's not clear how much other training and experience they had. Cause it said experienced ER and, and, and cardiology clinicians, but like how experienced were they? What does that really mean? And how much experience did they have doing um, point of care ultrasound? They did have this additional training. Um, but does that mean, can I extrapolate this information to a wider population of veterinarians mm-hmm. doing point of care ultrasound? And the answer is I, I would, say no, um, unless they've gone through that same training and been assessed to make sure that they can do it accurately. The flip side, the good thing is it wasn't a whole ton of training specifically for this. Um, Again, that's where my question is how much prior training do they actually have? Cause if these are ER and cardiac clinicians, like they may have had a fair bit of training in this already. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was just to kind of make sure they, they uh, hit a minimum threshold. So if you're out there and you're like, I've never had any practice, nobody's ever shown me any of this, maybe this, it would take more to get you up to that point point. But it's also not particularly. Owned. It's not like you have to be. You have to be a cardiologist to do this. So you can get to the point where you can fairly accurately use um, point of care ultrasound to assess left atrial size. Now uh, they also they didn't just look at left atrial size or the presence or absence of pleural and pericardial effusion. There was one other thing they looked at, which was lung ultrasound. What are what are your thoughts on that?
1: On the B line. Yeah.
0: It- <laughs> I'm setting you up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Personally, um, (laughs)
0: <laughs> do you do it? Do you do? No. Okay. Uh, okay. Honestly. It's, okay. It,
1: like I looked at, I, I looked at B lines going, is that normal?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't do lung ultrasounds either. <laughs> I, I find it for me and my hands to be mostly a waste of time. Cause I just think it's, um, we're not good at it. I think we're really good at being like, there's fluid there. And like that when you hit that interface, but ultrasound is not good for um, lungs. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and so you're like, Oh, but there's not as much. That's the whole point. But like, mm, and they have the, in the, in the paper, they have the, you know, images of, of beelines in figure one or whatever. Um, and, oh, and figure two, I don't remember. But in my experience, um, people, even with training, are not good at identifying quote unquote beelines. And I would argue that that's what they found in this paper as well. <laughs> that beelines was like the, the presence or absence of beelines was like the worst um, predictor for whether or not a pet had, I'm trying to remember what the, where the results were, but the beelines were me. Um, I, I don't, I don't like them. Um, I don't think it's a very good use of, I think, Point of care ultrasound is really good for finding fluid or not. I think you can absolutely do it to estimate or measure left, uh, like heart chamber sizes, um, not just the left atrium, but that's probably the one we do most. Um, and I think X rays are really good. <laughs> For looking at lung parenchyma, um, and I just again, I, I understand the 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 need or the desire to do that because putting getting a distressed cat and getting X rays is right. generally not advisable. Um, but I would rely more heavily on the other things that they found. So I would I would measure a pro BMP before I would do a lung ultrasound to help me decide if a patient is in heart failure because and it just makes sense, right? Like B lines are not going to be specific for heart failure, um, and a number of them had. Um, uh neoplasia they had uh one of them i think it had asthma um that they found beelines in so and it was a lot of cats in a not very big group so i i i'm oh one thing i love 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 that they did in this uh in this article this was like one of my favorite things they have a section that just says false positive and false negative results. <laughs> um, I I love the way this was written and how they organized it to be like, uh, oh yeah, this is what, presence of beelines on lung ultrasound incorrectly categorized some cats as having um, congestive heart failure, quote unquote, false positives. And using the criterion of greater than one strong positive vet blue site, um, lung ultrasound incorrectly classified three cats as having congestive heart failure, all of which were diagnosed with neoplasia. False positive also occurred using the NT-pro BMP snap test. I just, I really like the way they, they just said head hitting it head on. If you rely on these, these are the things that can happen. Um, and it, they they described it in a very clear way, rather than being like here are a bunch of numbers. They're like here's what happened. These are the animals that using this technique we got wrong. Like you would get it wrong doing this. Um, and then this was another one for the second paragraph that all diagnostic tests failed to correct correctly identify at least one cat so um, false negatives also happened so um, none of these tests are perfect is the important thing to remember Um, and you know you kind of have to use them all again the more things you do the better it will be essentially so if you're using lung ultrasound with all the other stuff okay I've I don't think it adds a whole lot personally. Um, and, and I do think that's the hardest thing to train people on. Um, so if you're doing a ton of training on it, maybe you get better at it. I think that's fair, but I, I don't think very many people are very good right. at doing long ultrasounds. That's my beef. Um, but I really did love the way they organized that in the, in this study where they just came down, like, here's what happens. <laughs> um, like these were the false positives and negatives rather than giving us like vague numbers and trying to have us figure out what that meant. So I appreciated the way that was written. Um, I don't know. So you don't do lung ultrasounds either. Do you Do you like to use point of care ultrasound for like left atrial size and I heart do. chambers? Yeah, uh, okay. I, mean,
1: I, I use it pretty much as I was doing, uh, as I'm doing my T-fast. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, hey, same
0: here. Up. You're like, oh, look at that. That's like a giant left atrium. <laughs> cool. Um, then I don't really feel like I need to go and look at lungs. I'm like, okay, looks like heart failure. Right. Um, okay, the other thing, I don't remember. Do you remember? Um, my favorite diagnostic test to differentiate animals in respiratory stress with heart failure or not fe- heart failure? Do you know? You might not know what my favorite is. What's your favorite?
1: Uh, I between the two I take. No
0: not between the two. Anything available out there because my favorite is not amongst the things we've talked about today.
1: <laughs> um,
0: and mine is based on evidence. There's literature out there to support mine too. I didn't include it in the articles today though.
1: I mean usually it ends up just being Time if I put them in an oxygen, sure, yeah. If they feel if they feel better, then it's probably not cardiac. Yeah, um,
0: you want me to tell you mine? Mm-hmm. Heart rate and temperature.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah, so there's that. a
0: nice study in dogs and cats actually that hypothermia, if you have an animal in respiratory distress with hypothermia is like a good predictor in cats, it's a really good predictor of potential heart disease. And then in dogs, tachycardia and hypothermia cats, they're always tachycardics when they come in. So probably less helpful there, but, um, but yeah, if you have a dog that comes in in respiratory distress and they're not tachycardic, like it's probably not heart failure. If their temperature is normal, it's like probably not heart failure. Um, but if they're tachy so this is I I love it because it's low tech, right? It's cheap, and I'm just like, oh yeah, that that's probably fitting. So same kind of thing. It's not perfectly um, you know sensitive or specific, but pretty good. And again, it's easy, and we should be doing it anyway. Yep. Um, so yeah, if I have a, a patient come in in respiratory distress and they're hypothermic and tachycardic, I'm like. Mm sounding like heart failure to me. Um, again, I'm not done, but um, I, it's definitely heavily leaning me in one direction or the other. Obviously, patients with pneumonia can be tachycardic for a variety of reasons. And um, and then they can become septic and get hypothermic. Obviously, there are exceptions to this. But uh, yeah, I've, I've that served me pretty well. And there was a study that came out years ago. I don't have that article, but you can look it up. Um, but it's looking at, um, again, in dogs and cats, and that um, just from a physical exam standpoint, those two were very good predictors of whether or not a patient in respiratory distress had heart disease or not. So that's my favorite. Um, but if that's not good enough, you want to get fancy, you can for cats measure NT Pro BMP or do point of care ultrasound of the lungs or the heart, the heart, or the heart. The heart. Um, and then for dogs, you can consider doing components. But we don't have a nice, we don't have a study in the same way that we have for the cats or I I didn't include one here. I looked and I didn't see one in a a quick search for like a dogs in respiratory distress. How do I use a cardiac biomarker to decide is it heart or not? I didn't, because I really like the way those two were designed as well. Like prospectively, I want to try to differentiate. I didn't see that for dogs, for troponins or BNP. I didn't look that hard though. That doesn't mean they're not out there. Um, So I might have to look a little bit more and see what we can find. But in the meantime, all right, are you changing the way you're going to Approach these no, after reading I mean, any of this? <laughs> Some of it you're already doing.
1: I don't even know how common troponin um, POC is. Because
0: I'm not aware of a point of care troponin test.
1: Because that's what they end up using. Like a, a commercially available one, right, I guess. Right. Yeah. But it's um, a human one yeah. uh, that they're using for the study. I'm like, Is that something that we carry? Even?
0: Oh, here? I don't think so. Um, I'm certainly not here but if it's something we were like we really want to do this we theoretically could Um, I'm not sure I'm going to jump on that bandwagon myself but it
1: doesn't change yeah I do
0: yeah not yet we're not there again do you come up with like a battery of things you need to do. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And this, and these three things together, they have, you know, sometimes they'll come up with those things and there's like a point scale. If you have this, it's a three point, you know, in the column of, yes, you have heart disease. This is worth one point or whatever. It just starts to get complicated. Um, And I'm just like, I need something quicker and easier. And um, I like heart rate and temperature (laughs) because those are quicker and easier. Um, And then, like you said, you have that and then you're like, okay, I'm going to try treating this and see what happens. Um, But it's tough, but uh, yeah, some good studies here. Um, again, review the physiology of the cardiac biomarkers if you're taking a board exam in the future because they're going to probably ask you about some of that stuff. And at the end of the day, these are all little pieces that you can use to build a case to kind of help you increase your confidence in a diagnosis, but none of them are perfect. That's, that's my summary for the day. Any other final thoughts? Mm-mm. No? Nothing else? nothing else all right well i suppose that that's probably time to wrap it up and say um you know bye for now and thank you for joining the podcast dave it was fun to have you here and um i'm sure we'll have you back very soon
1: yep yep thanks for having me
0: bye everyone